Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, December 17th, 2019, and this is episode 2570 of the Survival Podcast. Uh, I bet you're thinking today's going to be a listener call show or a Just Jack show. No, expert counsel. Isn't that on Fridays? It is on Fridays, usually. Um... This week I actually had planned to have quite a bit of Just Jack, and I got this cold, and my voice is really just at the limit of being able to get through a show. Yesterday, we had John Pugliano on, and I originally didn't have a guest lined up at all for this week. I was going to go this week guestless, and I asked John to come on specifically so he could help kind of carry the weight. So I'm going to lean on the whole council today. And I think, I'm not sure yet, we'll see how I, how I do overnight, but I think tomorrow we might have a second expert counsel show. So we might just go out for the year on two EC shows. So anyway, I've got enough material to do that. We will see how I uh, how I sound tomorrow when I wake up. I do feel better today than yesterday. All right, so <clears throat> here's what I've got lined up for you today. Thoughts on being prepared for elder care as we age, especially if you have no children or close family members to see to your needs. And, you know, there's a point where you really aren't fit to make decisions anymore. And what if there's no one to, to do that for you? Um, next up, how to handle checkpoints and get information from officers at checkpoints in a diplomatic manner from former police officer Steve Wise. Um, how to rebuild, whether to rebuild or to replace a transmission with Derek Bonpietro. Packing meat for retail sales with Darby Simpson. Dealing with an aggressive small dog. We're talking Napoleon complex here with Doc Kelly. And using up your FSA funds before the end of the tax year with Doc Bones. And I'm going to take a, a political one for my anchor segment today because it'll be relatively short. But there's a lot of people wondering, with this new impeachment that the Democrats passed, now Pelosi's saying... I'm going to hold on to the articles of impeachment and not send them to the Senate until you guarantee me you're going to run the trial the way I want it run. Like, what's the game there? Is there any leverage? Does that? What does it mean, and why would she do that? It's pretty simple, and I'll explain it all when we get to my segment at the end. Before we do that, let's go ahead and get started out with a quote of the day. I thought since uh, since everybody seems to be so big on invoking our founders right now, And I just find it ironic that I've, there's people who have been literally wiping their ass with the Constitution, right, for decades. They've literally been at war with the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and the Tenth Amendment, right? I mean, just, just, I mean, destroying the very fabric of the Constitution. And now they invoke it, and they invoke our founders. Well... I thought I'd quote one of our founders today, so I started looking, you know, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, etc. And a quote I found from George Washington um, that has nothing to do with this impeachment bullshit or these these phony crocodile tears that we keep hearing about how somber this is and, and what have you. Um, it has to do with us, because I think we're more important than they are. This is what George Washington said about freedom of speech. 
If the freedom of speech is taken away, then dumb and silent we may be led, like sheep, to the slaughter. See, our, our founders were not perfect men. And I don't worship the founders the way some people seem to. And I think that's foolish. And I think they would be horrified if they knew that it was happening today. But I do appreciate the fact that in the situation that they found themselves, the, the founding of a new nation, if the revolution that had just been fought were to mean anything, then there had to be some line in the sand which this new government they were forming could not cross. There had to be many lines. And if you look at it, the first ten amendments to the Constitution limit government. In significant ways. Every single one is a thing that government cannot do. Or a limit on what they can do. Or a deference of power to the states. Over the central government. Every single one of them. You notice that most of the um, amendments passed after the first ten. Actually, there's some stuff there that gives some, you know, right to vote for, for women, etc. But... Most of the additional amendments are things that government can do versus things the government can't do. It was really only our founders that decided to uh, to put limits on what government can do. And the first one, the first one was you can't interfere with the ability of a citizen to speak. Because they knew that was the linchpin of everything. It's something to think about when you hear these people who have walked, literally walked on, picked up, and wiped their ass with the Constitution, invoke our founders, and invoke our Constitution, and feign crocodile tears. You know me, I don't like either side of the dichotomy. But when I hear that, it literally makes me sick. But let's get on to better things today. Let's talk about thoughts on being prepared for your elder care as you age, especially if you have no children to see your needs. This email came in from someone who's in a situation where, you know, they got no kids. Uh, they really don't know who's going to be around for them. And they're starting to realize that as they get older, you know, they might get to a point where they can't care for themselves. And what should they be doing? Gary Collins, what do you say on this? Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the simple life where I talk about all things living a better, happier, more fulfilled life. Got a special thing for you guys. If you want to be a part of the simple life inner circle, simply text better life to three, three, seven, seven, seven. That's the way to stay up on all the things I do. All right. Getting older and uh, dealing with what are you going to do? Who's going to take care of you? Well, I'm not too far behind John and I have thought of that myself. There's a couple things on the, we'll talk the health side, but also I'm, I'm very fortunate in the sense that my, my good friends, I don't have kids either like John and his wife, but I'm not even married. So I don't even have a wife to change my diaper later on if things go wrong. So, um, it's, uh, you know, their kids know they're pretty much going to be taking care of us, me as well. I hope. Um, but if not, I'm also planning. I would recommend starting to look at care homes that you can afford and figuring out how much it'll cost. 
you know, that's the best way to do it. Uh, don't get me wrong. I used to investigate nursing homes, so you got to be really careful, really careful. But there's some really good assisted elderly living homes, and there are stages, too. You can end up in a 55-year and older community that caters to people who are aging, and then, you know, usually they even have connections to the next step of a further caregiving facility. I would recommend doing your research now, kind of get your ducks in a row, and financially, they're not cheap. If you want to, you know, live a, a really good uh, life and be well taken care of, you, you got to pay for it. That's the way it works. On the health side, you know, be active. A, a lot of people today, I mean, I'm shocked the people of my age, I look at them and they, not that I look like I'm 20, but they look like they're 70, 65, and they're only 50. So it's keep active. Don't stop. You know, walk. I always talk about this. Just walk every single day. 25% of the bones are in your feet, in your body, because those are your original automobiles. That's how we got around. Walk. That's what it's meant. It gets the blood going. You know, I talked about in a previous question, the lymphatic system, and that actually will will shuttle toxins out of the body and get nutrients throughout the body. But the lymphatic system only works with movement. You have to move for the lymphatic system to work. Very key. Um, eat healthy. And it's, uh, I can't, I'm, you know, I always tell people, this is the simplest concept. We overcomplicate health to no end in this country. We got movement. Move every day. Humans are meant to move. We're animals. Basic. Keep it simple. Eating. If you were put in uh, the outside in the forest, what would you have access to? That's what the human body, that wouldn't kill you, obviously. What would you have access to that's edible that you would consume seasonally? Pretty basic. Another simple one is don't consume processed food and reduce your sugar drastically consumption. I would not add sugar to anything for the most part. I do not. Um, you're only supposed to get eight teaspoons of sugar to include the sugar that's in your food. Most Americans consume 40 to 45 teaspoons a day. <laughs> Go figure. We have a, uh, you know, an epidemic on our hands for, in obesity. So very simple. Again, don't eat processed foods, reduce your sugar load, exercise. Can't make it any simpler than that. Get your ducks in a row, get your plan together. What, who's going to take care of you? If there's no one to take care of you, that means you're going to have to figure out an assisted living of some sort. Hope that helps, guys. And again, make sure to check out my new podcast, Your Better Life. Thanks again. Next up, I had a question for Jeff Lawton on banana circles. And I know a lot of the country, we're not going to grow bananas or banana circles. But uh, this is a pretty short answer. I'm going to come back with a little bit of a thought on why this is... Uh, Maybe something that pertains to more of us than we might think. Hi, it's Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan. And um, I have an inquiry here about banana circles and whether they have to always be round. It's not an immutable law, and uh, banana circles can definitely be ovals. And you can even have a kind of banana swale that's full of organic matter just like a banana circle so you can have a a, a deep radically mulched um 
long swale and just go bananas on one side if you like and walk them up and down as you desuck them. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be a circle. It's just a little bit convenient in some situations if it is a circle. But I've seen many that are ovals and I've seen many um, heavily rough mulched banana swale trenched systems that work fine, absolutely fine. So uh, the main thing is you've got a, uh, a deep hole or a deep trench or a deep oval that you can fill up with mulch well below ground, three to four feet deep, and you can put three to four feet of mulch on the top. Remember that they consume a lot of rough mulch, so keep piling it in as a regular event. At least once every two weeks, you've got to keep topping them up. You want them to be that full that you can't put any more in, it starts falling out, and then you're going to get... Real cracker bananas give you, give you lots and lots of production. There you go. So I think sometimes when people learn about permaculture, they learn a specific technique within permaculture. They don't pull back and see the tactic. A banana circle in a classic formation is we dig a pit. Okay, we dig a hole, big round hole. And of course, well, what do you do with all that dirt? Well, you make a, a, a mound around the hole. So you dig it evenly all around, and you plant bananas in the circle, and you fill the pit deeply with mulch. So then you can water the pit, and rain fills the pit, and you end up with irrigation. You end up with building compost as it's being used. I, I won't get specific to other plant types, but we can make that type of a technology work to grow many different things, including in temperate climates where most of us live. So I thought that would be interesting just to add on to that. And then, you know, this is the time of year where I think a lot of us, you know, do a lot of thinking. We have that winter downtime where I'm always talking about. How might that apply to what you want to do this spring? Just a little, little primer for the thought process. Next up, I got a question for Officer Steve Wise on, you know, questioning officers at checkpoints like, why are you here? What are you doing this for? What reason do you have for this? And I think it'll be interesting to hear the real reasons for checkpoints coming from a retired law enforcement officer that, well, used to have to go out and run them. Hello, Jack and TSP listeners. This is Steve Wise answering your law enforcement-related questions. Remember, I'm a retired law enforcement officer and, and not a lawyer. Uh, please check with your local laws and uh, seek counsel if necessary. Jack sent me a short note from Ken on the MeWe chat. It says, for Steve, is there any, is there a way to question the motives of a random traffic checkpoint without officers getting very defensive? <laughs> well, when I first thought, uh, read this, I thought, well, how do you ask somebody out on a date without them getting defensive? <laughs> I know, you're not asking the officer out on a date, but basically, you're in the same situation. You're negotiating with the officer to give you information. So let's talk about why they're checkpoints in the first place. Well, generally, I will say probably nine, uh, nine times out of ten, checkpoints are political tools. Someone in the chain of command says we want officers to run a checkpoint in a particular location for a particular reason. The simple example of this is the DUI checkpoint. People in an area complaining to the politicians about drunk drivers or there's been a vehicle-involved accident, maybe pedestrian struck or something like that, and it involves a drunk driver, you're going to see a political push to open up and run some sort of a checkpoint. 
one of the problems that law enforcement has in general is, you know, how do you judge a police department's overall effectiveness in a community? Uh, you know, it boils down to the idea that, well, you can't have a quota for law enforcement officers. You can't say, well, how many tickets did you do this week? And hold that officer accountable to say, well, you didn't generate enough tickets. You can't do that. So, however, you know, when you think about it, hey, um, burglaries are up, but arrests are low. And so there's political pressure to get the arrests up. So a checkpoint is one way that they use to raise those numbers. So, and unless the officers are rookie, you'll probably never have an officer ask about doing a checkpoint. They don't want to stand out there on the hot pavement or in the cold and ask people for driver's licenses or proof of insurance. Many times the officers uh, really don't know the politics behind the checkpoint. One example from my experience was a time when we were asked to run repeated checkpoints uh, and do all different types of activities in this one particular neighborhood. We ran the simple driver's license, proof of insurance checks. We even sat up on the corner and we did speed enforcement checkpoints with a whole bunch of people where we just, we would use a laser and we'd get the speed of vehicles going 25 miles an hour over the speed limit. We'd step out in the road and we'd stop them. Had a car, of course, on backup just just in case, but we did this consistently for over a month and we just, we never knew why. But later on, we found out that a major brand company was looking to open a drugstore on that corner, and um, we were work where we were working our checkpoints. And come to find out, the politicians were working with the store owners to "quote unquote" clean up the neighborhood. So, asking an officer why they're running a checkpoint generally starts with sympathy. I will say, um, "Hey, sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry they got you out here in this weather, whether it's hot or cold." Um, this is building the rapport up. You know, you're going to get, try to get that best position with them, uh, to, to be able to figure out what's going on. And then just simply ask, do you know why you're out here? Don't be surprised if you get an answer or something like, uh, because we were run it, told to run a checkpoint here. I mean, you can also appeal to the officer like, well, I live or work in the neighborhood or I have a family member that lives in the neighborhood and we just want to make sure everything's safe. So this is good ways to, build that rapport and, and to approach the officers that way. You're going to find out that a lot of checkpoints may also be boil into the still political, but the quote unquote special initiative. The governor is running a task force to ensure seatbelt compliance. You know, there may also be a checkpoint to validate the child seats are properly installed. I've seen that done. So, or maybe they're selling tickets to the policeman's ball. Uh, yeah, that's a chop, a cop joke and, I'll let you finish it. Another example that we had one time where we had a neighborhood complaining about uh, to all the police supervisors, hey, people are cutting through our neighborhood and they're speeding. So we set up speed enforcement and we ran it for about a week. And within the first week, we cost most of the neighbors. Well, I guess you got to be careful what you ask for. Checkpoints, once again, are basically political. And believe me, officers don't want to be out there doing them. So I'll send it back to you, Jack. Uh, next up for Derek Bonpietro, we have a question about transmissions. And to paraphrase, paraphrase Shakespeare, to rebuild or to replace, that is indeed the question. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Got a question from John on transmissions. 
His question is, is it better to rebuild a transmission or buy a remanufactured transmission? My transmission went out on my 08 Hummer H3. My regular mechanic doesn't do transmission work and recommended another shop. The shop says they can rebuild the transmission for $2,100 and they would warranty it for 24 months or 24,000 miles. However, I found a remanufactured transmission for $1,600 and a five-year, 100,000-mile warranty from Best Buy Transmissions out of Florida. The shop could do the work for $780. My gut is to go with the option that has a five-year, 100,000-mile warranty, but I've dealt with replacing a transmission before, so I would like to know your thoughts. My mechanic said to just let them rebuild it and that you don't know what you're getting from the Internet. But I like the idea of the longer warranty. Thanks for the show. Keep up the good work. So, John, your Hummer H3 has a 4L60E Chevrolet transmission. It's nothing special. It basically means that it's a four-speed. The L is longitudinal, which means it goes front to back, like a rear-wheel drive or four-wheel drive. And then the 60 is basically its its capability. So the higher the number, if you stepped up to an 80, is obviously something that would be in a, in a heavier-duty truck. And then the E means it's electronically controlled. And this is actually a very old transmission out of the 80s that was adapted and put controls on it for a computer. And so it's, it's been around for quite some time. I don't know if it's still being used, but we're talking decades here. So this is a very common transmission in the GM product line. So the H3 is really based off of the GM midsize pickup truck chassis. And you've got an inline six or a V8, or excuse me, an inline five and a V8 option. I would assume that you're not going to be working this vehicle really hard just based on what it is. It's not like it's a one-ton truck with a huge engine. So I think just a run-of-the-mill rebuild is probably what you're going to need. Now, having said that, as a transmission runs through time, there's little tweaks that people can do to the transmission to improve its longevity, kind of like get the bugs worked out of it because they all develop certain problems over time. Eventually, the manufacturer will either address it and come out with a different design or they might have an upgrade kit. But regardless, um, all of these kind of updates, so to speak, you definitely want to have done. And it probably wouldn't hurt to get some higher grade materials used like upgraded clutch packs and, and seals, things like that. Just make a better, stronger transmission. So you don't need to spend thousands of dollars on huge upgrade parts, but you're not feeding the horsepower to it certainly wouldn't hurt to spend a little bit more money to get some good upgrades that are going to give you better longevity and durability past that hundred thousand mile mark even even being worked with what your h3 probably does day to day john let me give you a little bit of my background i'm an ASE certified tech in automatic transmissions i've taught a manufacturer level at a college automatic transmission repair class i've torn them down i've rebuilt them I have absolutely no problems myself taking an automatic transmission apart and rebuilding it. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Doing transmission work is very, very intricate, detailed, clean work that needs to be done in a very, very clean, controlled environment and having lots of specialty tools. I would make it equivalent to painting a car or doing an engine rebuild internally, like redoing the pistons and rings and bearings, things like that. That's stuff that's left to the pros. I would not recommend having a local shop rebuild the transmission. I can tell you right now that they most likely do not have the tools and measuring equipment to actually make one that works well. Now, they can probably put a rebuild kit in it. That's the clutches, the seals, the bearings, and kind of just do the basics, jam it back together, and probably get you going down the road. But unless they actually do real automatic rebuilds, they just don't have the tooling to do it. 
it sounds like that's going to give you the worst result if you plan on owning this long term. Now, the one that was $1,600 that gave you the 100,000-mile warranty, that's probably a fairly run-of-the-mill rebuild using a basic kit, um, just replacing all the wear components. And then the, the labor sounds pretty decent at 780. I mean, I would expect a regular shop would be able to swap a transmission within a day, no problem. This is electronically controlled, so one thing that they should be sure of is resetting the computer once they put a new transmission in, because what happens over time is that as the transmission slips and bangs into gears, the adaptive learning in the computer tries to compensate for that by increasing or decreasing shift pressures and things like that. And you don't need to get into that, but understand that those adaptive controls will compensate for a worn transmission and then you put a new transmission in and it creates problems because now that doesn't apply to a fresh transmission it, reply, it applies to an old transmission so they should understand resetting it adjusting the fluid level correctly those are real basic things that i would hope anybody can do that's a, a seasoned mechanic so i wouldn't worry about so much the shop as long as you know they talk the talk well and have the equipment like a scan tool to do that I personally think that you're going to have to spend a little more than $1,600 on the actual transmission to get something that's pretty good quality, and not so much with the warranty. 100,000 miles is good, and I'd probably try to run between the 50 and 100,000 mile, but really just the quality of the components going into it. Torque converter is the piece that goes between the engine and the transmission. That should be rebuilt or brand new. One, it traps a lot of debris and dirty fluid inside of the converter. And so if you just simply take your old one and put it in the new transmission, you could potentially create damage by contaminating the fluid in the new transmission as soon as you start the engine. So I would get a remand or, or brand new torque converter, and I don't think that's going to be in that $1,600 range. They're usually at least two to $300 to start, and you definitely want to have a new converter put in it. Personally, I would be looking for a transmission shop that does nothing but transmissions that specializes in just GM late model automatic transmissions. That would be my recommendation. Find an expert, have them rebuild it, and then maybe have a local shop install it and get it going down the road. John, I hope that answers your question. Automatic transmissions are not necessarily the easiest thing to deal with, but don't just go to anybody because I think you can get taken for a ride and spend a lot of money and not have a good result. So buyer beware on this one. So I get a lot of questions about buying new vehicles and values and what should I go after. And those are all great questions. I was just in the market. I've been looking for a couple of months now for kind of a light duty work truck for my side work. And was looking at uh, first generation Tacomas and Tundras and just was getting a lot of high pricing and junk. Talking frames that you could put your finger through with rot. Uh, super high mileage, 150 plus thousand miles, and these were all in the 10 to 15 thousand dollar range. And I almost felt ashamed to, to be on the lot looking at them. And I, I almost wanted to yell at some of the salespeople because they were really si selling piles of junk. So I just want to let you guys know when you're out there shopping for vehicles, bring in, bring somebody that knows what they're doing, or bring a flashlight, or take lots of photos and bring them to somebody that would be able to tell you, like your local mechanic that you that you know and trust. Because, man, there's a lot of junk out there. But the saving grace on this one was driving through uh, one of my local Toyota dealerships, drove down the back lot, found something that was stuffed in a corner, covered in snow, no license plate, no dealer tag number on the windshield, found the used car manager. This happened to be about a half hour before closing, so used car manager came out, looked the vehicle over, got the info off of it, looked it up, 
told me this vehicle would be about $19,000. It was a 2013 Tacoma extended cab V6 auto TRD off-road package, real clean truck with just a touch under 100,000 miles. Told him that was kind of out of my price range. I was ready to walk away. I told him I'd be interested in buying the vehicle as is, being I'm a mechanic, I know what I'm looking at, I can fix things. And so what would the price be if he didn't run it through the shop? He just turned around and said, I took it in for $15.5, I'll sell it to you for $16 with dock fees. As is, let's do it. So I picked up a super clean truck where I can do the work on it and got the discount based on me being able to update all of the maintenance and do little minor repairs that they normally would have to have the shop do. Bam, there's the score of the century right there. So for all you guys out there trying to buy cars and are just suffering and having difficulty finding, just stick with it. Spent about two, three months myself looking, but man, when you find it and it's the right deal, pull the trigger. Just remember, we're coming up on the end of the month and the end of the year. So if you guys are out there looking for cars, now is the time. Thanks for the questions. Take care, guys. Next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson when it comes to packaging meat for retail sales. For you folks that produce uh, pastured poultry, pastured pork, etc., uh, product for market in retail sales. Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson of Simpson Family Farm and Grass-Fed Life, joining you once again to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. And this week, I've got a question from Jeff. Jeff asks, how durable are the vacuum seal bags that you use for meat? He goes on to explain... My professor keeps telling me not to use vacuum bags because they are fragile and the seal breaks often. I am trying to sell retail cuts and a customer wants to be able to see what they are buying. I don't know if it matters, but I'm selling beef and pork cuts. Thanks for all your advice. Well, Jeff, um, I don't know who your professor is. Uh, he's absolutely 100% dead wrong. Um, something I talk a whole lot about when I'm teaching and speaking is that if you are retailing cuts of meat, you are competing with a grocery store, like it or not. I realize that we're raising a much better, more nutrient-dense, specialized product, but we're still competing with the grocery store, and we got to act like it. we got to look like a professional. That means our stuff needs to be packed in vacuum-sealed, clear bags. They've got to have a nice, professionally printed weight price label on there. It's got to be state-inspected or USDA-inspected. It's got to look legit. I always go back to this. If you're retailing cuts, your customer is your prototypical soccer mom. And she wants to feel safe about what she's buying from you. She wants to be able to see it. And if she doesn't feel that way, she's not going to buy it from you. Um, now, with all that said, not all vacuum-sealed bags are created equal. Um, you, you need to make certain that um, you know your processor is using a very high-quality vacuum-sealed bag. And you might have to pay more for a good bag, but that is a very worthwhile thing. I mean, you're not talking about a whole lot of money, uh, but you've got to make sure they're using a high-quality, thick bag. There are definitely differences in how thick the material is, and that is going to play a role in how long something will stay vacuum-sealed. Um, something else you've got to think about is how you handle those packages. I, I can't tell you how many times I'll see people 
lift, particularly like a whole chicken, and they'll just grab it by the corner of the bag and just jerk it up off of the table or out of a cooler or whatever, and that motion pops that seal. So if you were to go to pick up a whole chicken, you, you got to handle that thing like a football. Okay, you got to wrap your hands around it. Same thing with anything else. Grab it by uh, the actual meat itself, not by the edge of the package, and just you know handle them with care. Handle them somewhat delicately. And you know if you if you follow that uh, logic and you're using a high quality vacuum sealed bag. You're probably not going to have too many issues. I mean, sure, you're going to have some seals pop and break. Um, and if you, if now, if you're having a whole bunch of them pop and break shortly after you get them back from your processor, then probably you know one of two things is going on. Either they're not using a high quality bag like they need to be using to meet your needs as their customer, um, or more likely. Their machine's not properly calibrated, so they might need to to go and test that. I actually had to call my butcher not too long ago because I, I expect to get a few popped seals here and there, particularly, you know, they come back, they've been transported home, they're sliding around and whatnot, and we're lifting them up and moving them in the freezer and everything. You're, you're going to have a couple here and there, but we had a bunch of them. I had to call them and tell them, like, I think something's wrong with your machine. You need to get it calibrated. You know, check it. Uh, may, maybe where, you know, it's heating the bag up at the end. It's not getting hot enough to properly seal it. Or maybe the suction chamber is clogged and needs cleaned. Or there's an O-ring or something is loose. Um, but back to, you know, this original point, it, they, they've got, they've got to be in a, a clear bag that is easy to see. Now, I don't say that that's true for ground beef or, You know, breakfast sausage, something like that. That can just be in a in a rolled uh, tube, if you will, like a bulk package. That's it's probably not clear. I've never seen a clear one. At least my butcher doesn't offer those. It's not vacuum sealed. Uh, it's usually put together with like staples on each end. That's totally fine. That is totally fine. But if we're talking about high quality bag that's been properly sealed. Uh, and is handled, you know, properly in the freezer and in your coolers to and from market. Man, I, I've got I've got stuff that lasts like over 12 months. It, it's all about those things I just mentioned. Um, and again, this gives you such an edge in selling by the retail cut, and the retail cuts where you make a whole lot of money. I mean, that's where we make a whole lot of money. And if I've got a crappy looking package, you know, it's pretty hard for me to sell some 100% grass fed black Angus steaks at $23 a pound if they're in a crappy looking package. Um, now, if you're having problems, Jeff, with a particular cut, then maybe you need to explore if this is a cut that's really popular that you know you can sell, but you're having some packaging issues. Uh, I know a lot of people will use, you know, styrofoam trays and maybe they'll shrink wrap it or they'll vacuum seal that. That tray can give it some stability. Um, if that's an option, you, you can talk with your butcher about that, but don't be putting stuff in old school white butcher paper. I mean, that, man, I know somebody that does that. One of my competitors at a farmer's market and like they're getting out marketed by everybody else, even though they've been there the longest. And, I think a lot of it has to do with, 
the way their package looks and their attitude. I mean, that goes into it as well. But the packaging just doesn't look nice, right? Like that's – maybe that's okay if like you're selling somebody half of an animal, right? And they're going to put that in their freezer. But like we don't even do that. Like our butcher, like he totally ditched the old white uh, paper. I, I don't even know that he keeps it anymore. Used to, you could do white paper or you could do shrink wrap, and now they vacuum seal everything. So I guess, you know, that's going to kind of, you know, change from butcher to butcher. Uh, but just have some conversations with them. Um, you know, look, you put a lot of hard work into this. You're investing money. You're investing time. This is a business. You want to be profitable, and it's got to look professional. It's got to look nice. You know, like my farm name is on every one of our labels. Our website is on there. It's all state inspected. It's top notch. And if you're going to command top notch prices selling by the retail cut at the farmer's market or wherever it is, you darn well better have a top notch looking product. And that all revolves around not just the quality of the meat, but also the packaging. So that's what I got for you, Jeff. Those are my thoughts. I say you do it and go the extra mile. Put your name on the package. Put your website on there. Put the price on there. Have the uh, you know the 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 weight and have the total price on there. I'm not into sitting there with a scale at the market and having people wait on me to do math. Man, I, I talk a lot about this in our online courses at Grass Fed Life, and I, I'm a true believer in it. I think it makes a huge difference. Um, so those are my thoughts, man. Good luck to you. I, I hope this helps you out and I hope that your business is profitable in 2020. Hey, uh, for anybody else that wants to learn more about me, Darby Simpson, or what we do at grass fed life, be sure and check out grassfedlife.co. There are tons of free podcasts out there as well as some free online resources. And there are some paid resources for those of you who are interested in getting serious and making money with pasture-based livestock. As always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend. Keep these questions coming. I love answering them for you. Everybody take care. Next up, we have a question for Doc Kelly for a dog with behavior issues. And um, actually, this question originally came in for me, and I kicked it over to her. And I did that because, honestly, I'm very hesitant to give a person with a dog that's biting uh, instructions over an audio program. I figure I'll leave that to a professional. I've actually never had to deal with a dog with this problem, with, especially it's, uh, it's food aggression to a large degree. When they have a treat or whatever, they snap and snarl at other dogs and other people. Um, and, and my statement to Kelly was, this is so easy to avoid. I don't really know how to correct it. And what I mean by that is I would just add to whatever Kelly has to say here, for you people out there listening to this that have a you know don't have a dog with a problem, but you're gonna get dogs in the future. It is way easier to prevent this behavior from becoming an issue than to fix it once it begins. And and my recommendation is if you have when you get a new dog, and this is so much easier with puppies because you know like we have a dog that was a year and a half two years old and we got her in off the street she's turned into a really good dog and it it took some work but you know. I had to deal with whatever that dog already had done to it or not done. When you get a puppy, they're really very malleable at that point. And when it comes to treats and it comes to food, 
what if you do what I'm about to tell you, you'll never have to deal with what Kelly's going to tell you how to fix. You give the dog the food, you take the food away. You play with the dog, you give the dog the food back. You take a treat, you give it to the dog, you take it away from the dog, you play with the treat, you throw it back to the dog. You just make it a game. to where And you always, in the end, let the dog have it. And then the dog has no reason to believe that you're going to take it away from them. They just don't. You can hand my dog a, a, a meat-covered bone. And it could be going to town on it. And he might hold on to it a bit, but you can walk up and take it away. There won't be a growl. Will not, a, not a single growl will come out of that dog's mouth. Because every one of them had that done. Here's a biscuit. I'm going to take the biscuit back. Here's the biscuit. Now you can have the biscuit. Here's another one. Let's play. And if you do this with your pup, you will not have a dog with this problem. Once you do, Kelly's going to tell you how you try to resolve the issue. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer your furry pet questions. Today's question is from Chris in Minnesota. Chris asks, our 10-month-old dog, Bichon Poodle Mix, needs obedience training, and I'm looking for recommendations. Our dog, Charlie, is very defensive of treats with our other dogs and us. He also growls and snaps at us at times if we move him while he sleeps. We love the dog very much, and he gets along great with our other two dogs. However, having a six-year-old in the house, this behavior is not acceptable. Admittedly, he did draw a small amount of blood once on me, but it was minimal. Is this him trying to be a pack leader? Okay, Chris. So unfortunately, this is not going to be a happy holiday, just do one simple thing and this will all be fine kind of podcast. With the behavior you're describing, especially with the child involved, this has gone beyond an obedience training issue and is now more of a behavior issue. And while they seem similar, this is a situation that is more nuanced and likely involves some possible anxiety issues or other behavior disorders in your dog. My first recommendation has to be to find a veterinary behaviorist, not just a trainer, who can work with you and your dog to develop a treatment plan. This is especially important since the behavior has escalated to the point of drawing blood, even if it was just a little bit, and there is a child in the house. I've seen smaller breed, a smaller breed dog bite and fracture an adult's finger, requiring multiple surgeries and a pin in the finger, and that finger still doesn't bend properly. So imagine if that were a kid's hand. That being said, there are some things that you could do right now to de-escalate the situation. Number one is avoidance of scenarios where the bad behavior happens. Each time a negative interaction is occurring, the dog is learning, and it's usually not what we want them to learn. For example, the first issue of being defensive with treats, people often want to scold or take back the treats from the dog, but this just teaches the dog to be even more defensive because, hey, someone really is going to steal my treat. Unfortunately, avoiding this scenario, especially with other dogs in the house, will probably be a hassle for you, even if it is helpful. You can't have treats or toys out and accessible to all dogs. If they have anything that may be favored, it must be given individually where the other dogs can't get to it. You could have the offender pinned up and then give treats to the other dogs or give them time with toys in another room. A gated pen or gated off room could be used as a safe zone for the dog um, that's the offender to have access to treats or toys without fear that it will be taken by another dog or human. But it has to truly be a place where dogs or kids won't bother him. This eliminates scenarios that could lead to bites to humans or other dogs. 
This is for Charlie's safety too, because you don't know how many times a larger dog will take the obnoxious little dog before they snap and bite in,、uh, Charlie in defense. And it's often not the Bichon Poodle mix that comes out on top in these scenarios. Now, the other problem of lashing out when disturbed from sleep is another hassle to deal with. Basically, if Charlie is out from his safe zone, it has to be for only interaction, training, and play, and being calm next to you, but not sleeping. When it's time to sleep, he goes back into the safe zone. It's common to think that we can interact with all dogs in a way that dogs accept without question, but it's unfortunately not true. There is a reason the old adage of "let sleeping dogs lie" exists. If it were just adults in the household, this might be different for arrangements. But with the kids present, letting Charlie have his own area really becomes key to preventing accidents. Many factors ranging from genetics, maternal behavior, experiences while with the mother, socialization afterward, and experience in the household with multiple dogs、um, can help create these scenarios. So it's not just something that went awry with training once you got the dog. There's likely a lot of factors coming into play here.、Um, but once you've set the environment up to prevent mistakes, you can work with the behaviorist to develop specific training techniques to make Charlie more accepting of the treats and of the sleeping scenarios. Often this involves very slow desensitization to these situations. For example, training him to wake by a voice command and always offering treats once he's awakened can help change his mindset on it. It's also possible to work on impulse control with training and leave it commands, so that if a scenario does arise with a treat, with, you know, if it was accidentally left out, you may be able to de-escalate with a voice command and reward. Now, I think it's possible that you can make progress with this, especially since Charlie is young. But, and this is where it's super important to have someone local working with you to really be able to read Charlie's behavior and get more detailed info on the scenarios to know if it's something that can be overcome completely. I don't want to be a downer, but it is possible that for this dog's entire life, and at least while young kids are in the house, you may have a modified environment. Which, while not ideal, it would allow you to keep a dog you love and keep all family members, human and otherwise, safe. Thanks for your question, Chris. And remember, everyone, that while I am a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian. So my advice is just intended to give a ballpark idea of what advice your veterinarian may give you. Thanks, Jack, and have a great weekend, everybody. Bye. So I had a question come in,、um, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy at Doom and Bloom.、Um, Take、uh, FS, FSA because、uh, their kits are eligible for FSA funds, which is money that's for medical needs、um, as part of a, a government program. And、um, the question was basically: Do any other MSB vendors do this? And, and to my knowledge, no. But I thought this would be a good opportunity for Doc to give you some ideas. What you can do with FSA money that you have available,、uh, especially this time of year where things run out, etc. So, Doc, with that, take it away. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Doctor Bones of the Survival Medicine website DoomandBloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Together with my wife Amy Alden, we're the authors of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the Survival Medicine Handbook, also. The best-selling book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Diseases: A Layman's Guide, and the designers of an entire line of HSA, FSA eligible medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Forgive any issue with sound quality. We're in a hotel room in New York City to visit one of our daughters. If there's a police siren in the background, just ignore it. 
Today's question for the expert council comes from Catskill Frank. Same state, different world, I'll bet. Anyway, he writes, Hey, what would you recommend purchasing with leftover FSA money? Besides doomandbloom.net, do you know if any of your other benefit vendors accept FSA? Every year I max out my FSA account, and this year I have quite a bit of money left over, over a thousand bucks. Wow. Uh, I was just listening to episode 2561. Heard Doc Bone say that his site accepts FSA. I'm going to get a couple of IFACs for my wife and myself and maybe a larger kit for our home. Wishing you and Dorothy a very Merry Christmas, and so do I. Wish Jack and Dorothy a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and an awesome 2020 Catskill Frank. Frank, you heard right. We do have an entire line of first aid kits that are eligible for your health savings accounts. And a good number of folks take advantage at the end of every year to beef up their medical storage or donate kits to their local police department or perhaps churches or schools. Other places that could use a first aid kit in these uncertain times are workplaces and vehicles. With active shooter events always the possibility, it's helpful to have a kit with items like this. Tourniquets. We suggest the CAT, Soft T, Sam XT, all TCCC accepted and all usable with one hand, as well as the SWAT tourniquet, easiest use with two, but versatile enough to stabilize a splint or to serve as a pressure dressing. There are others out there that are perfectly fine, but these seem to work out best for us. Hemostatic dressings like Quick Clots, Sea Locks, and Kytosam, these are impregnated with substances like kaolin or kytosan and will stop even arterial bleeding if used in conjunction and direct pressure on the bleeder for a full three minutes. Gauze rolls or compressed gauze or both. Bandages, bandages, bandages. You need bandages. They go well with beans and bullets, which I'll let other experts talk about. Gauze pads like ABDs 5x9s, multi-trauma 10x30s, 4x4s, iPads, non-sig dressings like Telfa, and more. More, more, more. Oral or nasal airways are a good idea. Chest seals are a lot of different types. We use the hyphen, but there are a lot of them out there that are perfectly fine. Just make sure they're vented. EMT shears or bandaged scissors to expose wounds. you got to see what you're working with. And, of course, gloves and masks and lots of them. If you're just interested in being prepared for mishaps on the trail or while camping, make sure you add things like moleskin or second skin for blisters, burn gel and non-sig dressings like Telfa for burns, sunblock to prevent burns, antiseptic wipes, elastic wraps and malleable splints like the SAM 36 inch for the occasional sprain or even a fracture. Then you have to decide how ambitious you are. You may have taken our suture class, for example, and have a working knowledge of wound closure. If so, having some extra instruments, laceration kits, and suture and staple kits would be wise additions to your medical storage. Some of these items may be outside the purview of what some people consider first aid, but are components of a first aid kit. HSA, FSA specifically covers kits. That's what you really need to know. You can use your HSA, FSA debit card or credit card in our store, for example, just like any other online purchase. If you don't have a card, you can use any bank card, but need to request a special receipt from Nurse Amy or whatever company you're using by leaving a comment to that effect in the comment section of the shopping cart during the checkout process. Please be aware that there are many fine companies that produce first aid kits, but realize any claims that this kit or that kit is meant for 10 people, 25 people, 100 people, 
this is difficult to substantiate. No one can determine the needs of that number of people. It depends on the environment, ruggedness of the terrain, hostile intentions of nearby survivors, level of water contamination, and so many other factors. Try to find companies that pack their kits in the USA. There are some that just order them from overseas already made. In that case, well, you're going to have to accept whatever quality standards they have over there. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget to fill those holes in your medical storage by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of all sorts of great medical kits and maybe some of our books and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. And remember, the Members Support Brigade gets 10% off anything in our store. So that, that brings me to, to my segment here. And I, the reason I chose to talk about this is, as I've seen it discussed on social media, no one seems to understand the why. What is the game plan here with Nancy Pelosi saying she'll hold up the articles of impeachment in the House? Like, what leverage does that provide or, or what have you? Um, and it amazes me that you, you know, I, I even went and listened to the talking heads for a little bit today, and, and no one seems to understand what other choice does she have. And, and so I want you to think about this, and I want you to understand something. What I'm about to say is true, and if you think Trump is the most awful human being that ever exists, that like if you reanimated Hitler, Trump's still worse, and you think he should be impeached, it doesn't change a word about what I'm about to say, if you can be honest, despite your hatred, okay? The Democrats ran a completely unfair and rushed impeachment. It has backfired. The people that are still for impeachment were for impeachment before anything to do with Ukraine came up. There is not a person right now for this impeachment who wasn't already for impeachment before they found something to impeach for. There might be a couple, but there's not many. And during this process, public opinion has shifted away from this. Because there's one, especially when you look at independence in America... There's one thing that's important to them more than anything else, and that's that a process be done fairly. That Whether they like the person involved or not, they want fair. And what the Democrats did in the House was routinely break their own rules for their own procedure because they could because they had such a majority that they could do whatever they wanted, and they chose to do that. They got out on a limb. And they promised the radical base an impeachment. I know this is stuff you have heard before, but I've got to set the stage for where we're at to explain what is being done now and whether, you know, whether or not she'll keep doing it. I don't know. We'll see. But I'm telling you what's being done right now. So they did that. <clears throat> Then they rammed through the impeachment. Of the two articles of impeachment, one is abuse of power. You can make a case that maybe that happened. And people say it's not a crime. Uh, the, the Constitution isn't specific to what they mean by crime. An abuse of office is a crime. Okay? Um, did he or didn't he? The, the honest answer is we don't really know. We don't really know. Is even doing what he did, even if they did it the way he said he did, is that a crime? Probably not. Is it an abuse of power? Maybe. There's, who knows? Is it based on historical context? 
cause to remove a duly elected president from office? No. No, because if we're going to start removing presidents for things like that, even if it's exactly what the Democrats say, we need to go at, back and retroactively impeach almost every single president that's ever held office. The second article of impeachment is for obstruction of Congress. <laughs> Invoking executive privilege is something almost every president has done as well. The court is hearing the case. And, and, and that is just like, so to me, if a person in the House had voted for this impeachment and voted for abusive power, I can disagree with them, but I can understand and say, well, okay, that's your, you know, okay, do what you want to do. The, the, the contempt of Congress charge is stupid on its face. I mean, it, it is, and there is no justification for it whatsoever. And, independents who decide elections know those two things I just told you are true, whether you agree with them or not. That is the, the hand the Democrats have dealt themselves. They turned the cards over. They dealt the hand that they have. They knew exactly what hand they were giving themselves. And now they're sitting there with a terrible hand. Maybe the worst self-dealt hand by Congress ever. Because they have a Senate with a clear Republican majority that is ready to dismiss this at the first opportunity. They have no leverage in the Senate. You can talk all you want about vulnerable Republicans. They have no leverage in the Senate at all. They have no leverage. They have no leverage. They have no leverage. The people that are radical screaming impeach trumpets are not going to vote for those five people no matter what they do. Period. It's not happening. They're not going to swing. There's one, I won't even say which one, but there's one that might, but I don't think it has anything to do with getting reelected. It has to do with just who that person is. But that doesn't matter. There's still enough to dismiss this. So you send it to the Senate, it gets dismissed. Chucky Schumer can get up and he can bitch and cry and whine all he wants. You ain't getting what you want, Chucky. I'm sorry. It's not happening. Okay, so now you're in a position where you can yell, you can rant, you can scream, you can say it's not fair, and you just conducted yourself in every manner speaking unfairly for 60 days. The American people just watched you do it. Even the people on your side know that you were unfair in what you did. They're just okay with it because it benefits them right now. There's not a person with an IQ above 75 that observed even half of what went on that would look you in the eye with a straight face and pass the lie detector test and say what was done was fair and proper and done by the rules of the Congress. If you think it was, I can tell you the only thing you can possibly be is a liar or stupid. You're either that stupid Or you're, you're just that good of a liar. It was not fair. By doing that, they've pretty much, like I said, they dealt this, they made their own bet. They gave McConnell the ability to be completely unfair. And anybody that's open-minded about this at all, that hasn't already made up their mind one way or the other, is like, well, that's what you get. That's what you get. They did it. 
You can say what you think McConnell should do anyway, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter. Public opinion, they did it. What gets done to them, they made their own bet. So now what do you do? You send it to the Senate. They vote to acquit. It's gone in a week. It's not in the news anymore. And it's over. And you did it all for nothing. And it just takes the wind out of their sails. And so what is your only other option? I know. I'll hold on to it and say, I'm not sending it until you give me assurances that we'll get what we want. And McConnell says, okay. He already said, I'm not in a hurry. I don't care. She wants to keep it. She can keep it. I read an article somebody shared with me today. He said, McConnell can summon the chief justice and can call the trial without her delivering. I don't think he can. I don't think he can. I don't think that's how it works. They said, well, the, 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 the Constitution gives the Senate the sole, you know, sole authority to conduct the trial. Yeah, but it doesn't give them the, the authority to commence the trial unless they are delivered articles of impeachment. They have a special box for them to go in and everything. So Nancy Pelosi can hold it. And McConnell would look really stupid if he, if he jumped the shark on that. So he's not, and he's always said he's not gonna. So with, with, you would wonder then why, what is the advantage here? Pelosi, if she took her little box or her rosewood box with the articles of impeachment in it and went down to Starbucks with five dollars, combined with the five bucks, she could get herself a cup of coffee. That's it. So what is the play? Have you figured it out yet? The play is, There's no expiration date on the articles of impeachment. And the only person that can screw this up for Trump now is Trump. Trump's ego is the size of a freaking elephant. That's why he's a Republican, because his ego matches the, the, uh, the mascot, right? It really is. It's a, you, no, I think even Trump's biggest fans would say, oh, he's got a huge ego. So they're hoping that they can goat him. And it's saying, I want a full trial, and I want Biden's son, and I want... Because if, they, if the Republicans start calling their witnesses, the Democrats are going to get their witnesses. They're not going to have the complete shit show that was in the, in the House happen in the Senate. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presides over this, not Mitch McConnell. Okay? So if they, they, can, they can bring it in, move to dismiss, and make it very short. The Republicans have the... They, definitely have the power to do that. They do not have the power to bring it over there, call in 20 of their own witnesses and not let the, the Democrats have any witnesses the way they were treated in the in the house. They can't do that. It's one or the other. Everybody gets their witnesses or nobody gets witnesses and we just do this the way it's always been done. Okay. So, what Pelosi can do is I'll just hold on to him. And here's the game. We will keep poking Trump and try to get him to shoot his mouth off. I guarantee you McConnell and his people have sat down with the president and said, Mr. President, please just shut the F up about this. We got this. You have a win in your pocket. Don't give it away. Just if you want to mock it here and there, fine. But overall, chill out. And if you look, Trump spoke for two hours last night. I heard this on Fox News. He spoke about the impeachment for about 45 seconds. Almost like he's listening, but they're going to keep goading him. Then there's the other Hail Mary pass. They really believe the guy is a scumbag. They can't believe they haven't gotten anything on him yet. They will eventually find something, or he will do something else that will drastically turn public opinion against him. 
They have a ready-made, ready-to-go impeachment. Why would you send the impeachment now if you're Pelosi? Why? You get nothing, and it's gone. And if something comes up, you got to start all over again. Let's say about June, some giant bomb drops that Trump did it again or whatever it is, right? They got to start impeachment all over again. Now you're how far away from it from a an election? But if something happens, and all of a sudden those five vulnerable Republicans become ten, you can get your shit show in the Senate that they want. The other thing is, well, maybe the court comes back now and says, you know, the subpoenas you sent to like, you know, Bolton, etc. Yeah, they have to show up and testify in the House now. So they have a packaged impeachment ready to go. And all they have to do now is look for something to sway public opinion enough and time it right when they drop it to Senate. Nancy Pelosi looks like an idiot. And she really looks like an idiot with egg on her face right now. A drunken idiot, by the way. But you don't get that much power and keep it for that long if you really are as stupid as you appear. This is the only logical move for them to make right now. And I can hear some of you screaming out there, ah! Okay, you can, I don't care what happens. It doesn't matter to me. This is a weather forecast. That's what she's doing. And she may hold it indefinitely. She may hold it all the way to the election. Who knows? She may not, because how hot will that potato get? I mean, how big of a deal are they going to make it? it? It's a game. It's a game, and it's a sad game, but it's a game. But there it is. That's that's why they're doing it. That's the leverage point, and right now it is the only play. It is the only play they have. Because, again, Chucky e. Schumer can get up in the hall of the Senate every day and go, we need witnesses. A trial has witnesses. No one cares, Chucky. E. The people that care, they would support impeaching Trump for putting Russian dressing on his salad and call it collusion. That's who's for impeaching Trump. Logical, rational people, even people that don't like him right now are like, you know, we have an election less than a year away. He didn't blow the country up like they said he was going to. My life overall is pretty much the same as it was before he took over. Maybe it's a little bit better. Even if I'm going to vote against him, eh. That's up to us. The people who want him impeached hated him from the get-go, wanted him impeached from the get-go. I would love to see a poll done. You know, they say, so-and-so percent of Americans uh, say to impeach the president. So, some say to impeach, but not really, blah, 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 bullshit. Okay. I would love to see this poll. Sir, are you for or against impeaching Donald Trump? I'm for it. Sir, last year, before we heard the word Ukraine associated with Donald Trump, were you for impeaching him then? Yes. I'd like to know how many of those out of the people that say they're for impeachment there are. And I'm going to say it's the vast majority. I'm going to say that right now, after everything we've seen, there's very few people that are for impeaching Donald Trump that were not for impeaching Donald Trump in July before any of this started. But, again, I digress. In the end, it's the only place she has. So, as you watch all the talking heads tomorrow and through the weekend go, well, it's strategic this way and that, there, it's, it's the only play you got. It's that simple. It's not hard to figure out. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And I uh, want to remind you this time of year, if you want to support the show and the work that we do, as you're doing that last-minute Christmas shopping, I know you're going to do some of it online because Pete's going to the store. 
Uh, do it at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Take you to a subpage of the Survival Podcast website, and you can see all the stuff I've ever reviewed. And if you start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, you help us in the work that we do. Um, so today I'm bringing back an item I talked about recently. It's kind of a quick bring back, but it's the uh, Nova Sous V Precision Cooker, specifically the Nano version. And the reason is it's on sale for $79. bucks. It's one of the best sous vide cookers on the planet for $79. bucks. It's just awesome. And I can't see you can go wrong getting one of these for $79. bucks. Ships free, will arrive by Christmas. That's all I'm going to say about it today. I want to keep things short again. My voice is, you can hear it, the strain in it. Um, but definitely consider getting one of these for someone you love. You will do someone a favor if you introduce them to sous vide cooking. I, if you were listening to the show a long time, when this subject started to come up a few years ago, I resisted it pretty hard until I tried it. It is just one of the coolest ways to cook, and it makes your life just a little bit better. For 79 bucks, man, you can't beat it. Check it out. The Nano Sous Vide Cooker by Anova. Uh, I did put this little note in the write-up today about, one, why well, I'm bringing it back, but two... I just noticed when I looked at it, they now sell a package deal. For like 148 bucks, you get the Nova Sous V cooker and a little vacuum sealer. It might be good, but I wouldn't buy it. I've owned three other uh, vacuum sealers in my life before I bought my commercial grade one from Cabela's. And all three of them eventually went into the garbage as I told them, yes, speaking to inanimate objects, what a useless piece of shit they were. Every cheap vacuum sealer, I've owned a Food Saver, I own some other brand that's well-known, but I can't think of it, and like an off-brand. And they just don't work. They have problems. I think if you want a vacuum sealer, saving up for a really good one and making an investment is the way to go. I haven't found one on Amazon that's as good as what Cabela's offers, so I don't even have one at T-Spaz. I, I recommend the Cabela's one. Uh, it's pretty expensive. I have a link to it in the show notes or the, the T-SPAS write-up today so you can see it. But if you watch that, they put them on sale. And usually right after Christmas in the New Year's is when they put everything on sale at Cabela's. I got mine for like 120 bucks off. And I have had it now for four years, and it still works great. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Time for Song of the Day today. And this song is by Three Doors Down. And it's where Christmas, where my Christmas lives. And it's from an album that they released around Christmas time, so they decided to write a Christmas song for it. And what I like about this song is it's just rooted in being home and with the people you love for Christmas. And we don't, I don't think we get a lot of really new and original Christmas songs anymore. Artists put out a Christmas song, they sing Silent Night or Santa Claus or something else. Um, this is, you know, a guy sat down and said, I'm going to write what this means to me instead of rehashing what everybody's already said, instead of singing White Christmas in a different way. So my pleasure to share it with you today. Where My Christmas Lives by Three Doors Down. And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.